Thanks very much for having me back. It's the last time. Take comfort. Um, and before I move on to this next part of Joseph, if you've got a Bible, uh, feel free to uh, just put your thumb in Genesis chapter 42. But just be aware, when I read through part of the text, I'm going to be skipping uh, verses here and there just for the sake of time because there is uh, quite a few chapters to get through this morning. But I want to tell you about a couple called Gus and Evelyn. They're an old, older couple. They're retired and they enjoyed long retirement and they spent a lot of time travelling together. Uh, they enjoyed long life because of Evelyn's strict regime of diet and exercise. And she imposes a lot of this on her husband, Gus. On one of their retirement trips, uh, their plane crashes and they find themselves at the pearly gates. And after being ushered in, they're taken on a tour by St. Peter. Gus is in awe. This place is amazing. And... uh, He's showing this, he's showing that, and uh, finally they stop at this amazing place. And Gus says, what is this place? And he says, this is your mansion. Wow. Really? How much does it cost to stay here? He says, well, it's free, says St. Peter. This is heaven. And they, Gus looks out the back window and he sees this amazing greenery and manicured lawns and he sees a little flag and he says, what's that out there? That, my friend, is a championship golf course. How much does it cost to join? It's free, says St. Peter. This is heaven. And then his nose picks up a whiff and he says, what is that amazing smell? He says, that, my friend, is lunch. And as he looks down the hallway, he sees in the dining room a smorgasbord that is from heaven. And he says, how much is that? And he says, it's free. This is heaven. And Gus turns and he looks at Evelyn and he says, you and your blinking bran muffins, we could have been here years ago. (laughs) I hope that you don't feel like that about the story of Joseph. I know we've taken a little while to get here, but we're finally at the climax of the story. And I I wonder whether Joseph felt like that when he was finally promoted Uh, to the position of power that his dreams long ago uh, indicated that he would have, I wonder whether he thought, God, what has happened? I could have been here years ago. Why? Why this path? Why this long? Why, why, why? But as we'll find out today, it appears that he stops asking why and he starts to see why. And he starts to be able to, by God's grace, God reveals to him in effect the invisible ink God has been writing all this time. We'll talk more about invisible ink in a minute. Okay, so I'm going to pick up at chapter 42 of Genesis, and good luck if you're trying to keep up. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he says to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food for us so that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, that's Egypt, the person who sold grain to all its people. And when Joseph's brothers arrived, 
listen to this, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they did not recognise him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. And he said, you're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. After denying it, and it goes back and forth a few times, he says, this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. And if you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your younger brother back to me so that your words may be verified and so that you won't die. So they proceed to do that. And on their way back, they say to each other, verse 21, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life and when we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you? Don't sin against this boy. But you wouldn't listen. Now we have to give an accounting for his blood. They didn't realise that Joseph could understand. Sorry, they're not on their way back. They're still in Joseph's presence at this stage. They didn't realise that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And he turned away from them and he began to weep. But then he came back and he spoke to them again. And he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their very eyes. Now they're on their way back. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to feed his donkey and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has returned, he said to his brother. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. And then Jacob said to them, verse 36, You've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You can put both of my sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, my son will not go there with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. Still playing that favourite, isn't he? He's the only one left. If harm comes to him on this journey that you're taking, you'll bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. Chapter 43. So when they'd eaten all the grain they'd brought from Egypt, their father said, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said, the man... That's Joseph. The man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Then Judah said to his father, send the boy along with me and we'll go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. This is the second brother to say this. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you for the rest of my life. As it is, if we hadn't delayed, we could have gone back, or we could have gone and returned twice. So the men took gifts and double the amount of silver and Benjamin. And they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They're to eat with me today at noon. He asked them how they were, and he said, How is your aged father? You told me about. Is he still living? 
They replied, yes, your servant, is, uh, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. The men had been seated uh, before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. It would have been a scary thing, I reckon. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. And so they feasted and drank freely with him. Chapter 44. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sack with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did exactly as Joseph said. And in the morning, the men set on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone very far when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up to them, say to them this. And so he does. He goes and he catches up to them and he repeats Joseph's words. Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and he also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing that you've done. The brothers look at the steward strangely and says, why do you say such things? Far be it from us to do anything like that. We've even brought back from the land of Canaan the silver that we found inside our sacks. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well, said the steward. Let it be as you say. But then he tones it down a little bit. Whoever's found to have it will become my slave. Doesn't say he'll die. And the rest of you will be free of blame. So each of them quickly lower the sack to the ground and open it. The steward proceeded to search, beginning from the oldest and ending with the youngest. Imagine the tension building up. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And at this, they tore their clothes and they loaded their donkeys and came back to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. It's the third time they're bowing down to him. What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now your servant's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. They're still offering themselves all as slaves. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and he said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to you. Do not be angry with your servant, although you are equal to Pharaoh himself. And he goes on through the next few verses to explain why it is that they couldn't possibly go back to their father in peace. If they go back without Benjamin, it will be the worst result. And then Judah says this. Now then, please let your servant, me, Judah, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Wow, all of this just throws up so many questions. And as I read this the first couple of times, I was just, man, why? Joseph is just toying with them. He seems to be teasing them, you know. 
you're spies, you're dining with me. It's all, you know, in jail, out of jail, money back, food, oh, it's just, it's all confusing. Uh, at least I found it confusing. So here's, here's a few things that after I've read it and read it and read it again, here's a handful of questions that throw up that'll help us understand what's happening here and then we'll keep going. First of all, why does Joseph keep Simeon as a hostage? He says, you can go, I'm alleging that you're spies, but you can go and I'm going to hold one of you here as a hostage and I want you to bring back Benjamin. Why is he doing that? Well, first of all, I think because he's desperate. He recognises them and he's desperate to be reconciled with his family. He doesn't want them to just come in and out in a food transaction and never be seen again. If this is his chance to connect with them, he's going to make sure he does. And so he keeps the connection. Secondly, I think he knows how long this famine is going to last and he knows that whatever food they've bought is not going to last them the next five years. Secondly, he really does love his brother Benjamin. Or thirdly, he really does love his brother Benjamin. He really, really wants to make sure that he's okay and he wants to connect with him also. Why does he give their money back? Again, he seems to be toying with them, setting them up for some kind of accusation. I expect he knows that this won't be the last time they're going to need to buy grain. I expect he doesn't want to see his family suffer. You know, when the Egyptians came in and out buying grain, they eventually ran out of things to buy with. They first came and bought grain with money, and then when they ran out of money, the famine was still going and they needed to buy grain. And so Joseph said to them, well, fine, trade in your land. Hand your land to the government and the government will supply you food. And so they did that. And then when they ran out of land, they traded themselves. They actually enslaved themselves to the Pharaoh. And the Bible tells us that the whole nation became in servitude to Pharaoh out of this whole this big food program. Now, is that good policy? I don't know. We wouldn't do it here in Australia. But... Joseph knows that they're going to need to buy and he doesn't want to see the same thing happen uh, to his family. So he sends their money back. Why does Joseph set up Benjamin when he sees his brother? He sets him up possibly with the death penalty. Why does he do that? Doesn't he love his brother? Well, yeah, he does. And I think he's actually testing his other brothers. He wants to test their hearts. He wants to see what they think of causing their father grief again. He probably knew, he probably was in the well listening while they talked about what they would do with Joseph the first time when they beat him up and sold him. He probably heard them say, hey, let's just uh, sell him off and we'll tell dad that he's died. And he wants to see whether their hearts have changed since then. And he does see it, doesn't he? Joseph sees not only has God been working in Joseph's heart, but that God has been softening his brother's hearts. The brothers that previously had planned to kill Joseph out of envy, and the only thing that stopped them was the opportunity to make money. They had previously planned to kill him. They had constructed this elaborate lie to make their dad think that Joseph was dead. They had kept a terrible secret amongst the 10 of them for the last 20 years, 20 years. Now those same brothers are willing to give themselves in place of their brother, Benjamin. Judah, the brother who says, ah, let's not kill him. It'll be cleaner and more profitable to sell him. That same brother now says to Joseph, hey, 
I can't not send Benjamin. I'll do anything. I'll give myself if I need to, to avoid that happening. He's now the one who's offering himself. And this is the change of heart that Joseph was wanting to see. And so after hearing Judah's plea, chapter 45, Joseph could control himself no longer and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and the Pharaoh's household heard about it. I've got one of those in my family, cry so loud that the neighbours hear it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Oh my goodness, this is Joseph. What is about to happen? Can you imagine your heart coming up in your throat, the blood draining out of your face? Suddenly you're all, it'd be, it'd be terrifying. It really would. But Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. They found their tongues. And when the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Joseph said to his, sorry, Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Here's where we've been so far until now. Joseph learns contentment and not envy. He puts and he leaves God in charge. He chooses not to carry a grudge against the people who wronged him again and again and again. Those three big letdowns that he had with his brothers and then with Potiphar's wife and then with the cupbearer. He invokes God's power and not his own. He's put on the spot in that moment to save himself and he says, no, it's not me who can do it. It's God who can do it. And he glows. He shows himself to be a man of God. He's obvious to those who watch him. Even though he's in a dark, godless place, it's obvious to those who look at him that God is with him. And just so you're wondering how far they've come, I just like doing this. There we are. Israel is up here. Egypt is there. It's not that far in the scheme of things, but if you've got no grain, any distance is worth travelling, isn't it? 
And here's my last analogy. I've told you about Mr. Squiggle. I've told you about some other sort of weird analogies that my brain can handle. But here's the last one. Invisible ink. I don't know if you've ever tried writing with invisible ink. Apparently it's not that tricky, you know, lemon juice, milk, whatever. And you can write on paper and to the naked eye, when the ink is dry, there's nothing on the paper until later when either heat is applied uh, or you brush it across with a crayon or something like that and the message becomes apparent. I read a great story about, a, uh, about invisible ink. Uh, only in 1995, not so long ago, uh, a guy, only happens in America of course, a guy uh, walks into a, a bank in Pittsburgh and he robs them in broad daylight without any attempt at a disguise. No mask, no stocking, no anything. And he gets arrested later the same day. And he uh, is being questioned by the police. And they said to him, why? Why on earth would you rob a bank and not try to hide your face? And he mumbled, but I wore the juice. And after a bit more questioning, he was under the false impression, I think, he got his sort of wires crossed a little bit, uh, and he thought that rubbing lemon juice on his face would stop the cameras from seeing his face. Which brings us probably to the conclusion that uh, ignorance produces confidence more than knowledge does. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. With the invisible ink, right, there is a message there. And it's just that you can't see it or you can't see it right now. And here's the thing that becomes apparent to me when I look at this part of Joseph's life. Hidden sin is not really hidden. Hidden sin is not really hidden. About 20 years earlier, Joseph's brothers had did a terrible thing. The 10 of them had conspired together and they'd committed this terrible act on their brother. They had no idea whether their brother was dead or alive. They had told everyone he was dead because that was an easy way just to get rid of the story and to stop people wondering and looking into it. But it's been sitting there gnawing away at their conscience and they've covered it up and they've moved on with life as if it wasn't there, but it is there. And even though it's invisible, uh, to the rest of the family and to their friends and their neighbours, it is there. And it's like a chapter of their lives that they've chosen to write in invisible ink. And if you look at them, and if I looked at them, they look like normal people. Local shepherds. How it looked, sounds like they were farmers too. Pistachio, nuts and honey and all sorts of good things. They're the local Mike Bangay. Uh, they look like normal people, normal lives, normal struggles, normal homes, normal families, but they're carrying this secret. And with that secret, they're carrying guilt, massive guilt. And you can tell that they're carrying terrible guilt because you only have to scratch the surface. They only have to go through this one little thing and out it comes. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. You saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but he, we wouldn't listen. And that's why this distress has come on us. Boom, up it comes, straight to the surface. You and I 
I reckon we're pretty good at dealing with visible sin. I don't beat my wife in front of everyone. (laughs) We're pretty good at dealing with the stuff that we see. But I don't think we're great at dealing with the stuff that is hidden. And in fact, if you're anything like I am, you've become an expert in writing parts of my life in invisible ink. Stuff that I don't like, stuff that I feel pretty guilty about, stuff that I wouldn't confess to you very readily, stuff that I can hide from you because I figure it's invisible. And because I've concluded in myself, I think it's easier and better if I just move on and pretend that it's not there and pretend that I don't have any unresolved guilt. And yet, at the same time that I do that, I confess a belief in an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present God, and I still think somehow there's a part of my brain that says my sin or that sin is invisible. And I think when I, when I look at those two scenarios, and I think, well, I, I believe in God, and I believe he sees all, he knows all, and yes, you know, he's above all, etc. and he's always there. And I look at the fact that I'm trying to hide my sin, from God? I'm about as smart as a guy who rubs lemon juice on his face and robs a bank. So do I really then believe in an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present God? And if I do, which I do, I'm in serious trouble. Because if he knows all and sees all and he's always present, then he knows the thoughts that I've had about that person. And he knows the ridiculous scenarios that I've played out in my mind, wishing that they were true. He knows my heart attitudes towards others, about myself. He knows my heart attitudes towards God. He sees the things that I do when no one else is watching. He's there when I did that thing that keeps me, keeps replaying in my mind again and again. Just like these brothers. They're like, don't you remember? This is what it is that that has come back to haunt us. I don't know about you, I've had that feeling. Something that I've done just keeps replaying over and over and it just keeps bringing the guilt back to the surface again and again and again. Now, if I believe in this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, then God was there when I spoke those words, those harsh, bitter, poisonous words. He was there when I out and out lied to make myself look better than I really am. And if I believe all those things are true, which it is, then there is no escaping my guilt. There is no escaping my guilt. I might try and deny it, but my conscience tells me that it's there and it brings it to the surface. I can try to justify my actions, but I know that's really simply an attempt to avoid what I deserve. I can deflect attention by pointing at someone else who's worse than me, but that actually doesn't take away my guilt because guilt is not relative. Guilt is not relative. It's either there or it's not. It doesn't matter whether someone else has bigger guilt than you. If you've got guilt, you've got guilt. My guilt doesn't disappear simply because someone else also has guilt. It's a bit like when, the guy, you, know, when you get pulled over and you say, yeah, but that guy, did you see that guy going past me? He was doing at least 10 Ks more than me. It doesn't change your guilt. So here's an uncomfortable fact. Our hidden sin is not really hidden. 
It's not hidden from God. And it's not hidden from you. Your hidden sin is not hidden from you. You know it's there. My hidden sin is not hidden from me. I can choose one of three responses. If I look at my life and I see hidden sin, stuff that I hope is invisible and that I'm trying desperately to keep hidden, I can deny it, I can suppress it, or I can confess it. If I deny it, I end up living a lie. The truth is, if I deny it, then what I know to be true and what I say to be true are two different things, and the truth is no longer something I hold very precious. I can't lie to myself. And eventually I might believe the lie, but the truth becomes something that is no longer valuable to me. If I suppress it, then I'm continually looking for things to distract me and distract others. I look for ways to do good so that you will think better of me. To counteract my guilt, to feel better about myself. I look for ways that I might tip the scales back in my favour so that I've done more good than bad and so that God will think better of me. And if I confess it, well, I don't know about you, confession feels like the worst option right now. Confession, if I confess it, then I have to tell you or tell God what a bad person I am. I have to own up. And I'd rather not own up because I'd rather think better of myself. And I risk the consequences of my actions. If I confess, whatever's coming to me as a result of what I've done, then it's coming. I can't put it off. I can't avoid it. If I confess a wrong against you, you might seek to punish me. Even if you don't, others might seek to punish me. My reputation might suffer. You might never forgive me. And that's the very position that Joseph's brothers find themselves in right here. They can't deny their guilt. They've been discovered. They thought they had gotten rid of the evidence, the person who knew Joseph, but they hadn't. They can't suppress their guilt. They can't distract Joseph and say, oh, yeah, but we've done so much good in the last 20 years, you know. We've really looked after our dad. Joseph has uncovered their guilt. There's no denying it. There's no distracting from it. So their only option is to confess. And they say it themselves. What can we say? What, what on earth can we say to you? When they realise that this is Joseph, that's why they're dumbstruck. They just don't know what to say. And if you and I are going to identify with anyone in this part of the story, can I tell you, it's not Joseph. You and I are not the Joseph here. We're the brothers. We're the Judah and the Reuben and the Simeon. We're the ones who need to deal with our guilt. We're the guilty party, not the innocent party. Don't put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Put yourself in the brother's shoes. And here's where the story becomes so amazingly powerful. Because God's secret agenda is not really secret. You ever wondered why this story is even in the Bible at all? Yeah, I know, it sort of gives the link between how they got from Canaan into Egypt because they had to come out again in the Exodus. 
and it's historically significant and they got from a family to a nation and all that stuff. Here's why I think, at least one of the reasons why. I believe that God inspired Moses to record this in the Bible because he was demonstrating his amazing rescue plan. And if you get to the cross where Jesus died and saved all of mankind, you turn around and you look back across the Old Testament and you see coming out in invisible ink this story again and again and again and again. I'm not going to give you lots of, lots of examples, but I dare you to go back and look for that theme of redemption and restoration and rescue again and again and again, and you'll just see it coming up in the Old Testament all the time, and you think, wow, it wasn't until we got to Jesus that we realised that that stuff was even there. Can you imagine having been a Jewish person in Jesus' day and, and all of a sudden the Old Testament reads so differently now? It's like this other part of the text is coming out in invisible ink. God was getting his people ready during the whole of history for the power of the gospel, which is Jesus. Because there was someone coming who would be a better, truer version of Joseph. Someone who was loved by his father. Someone who would be sent by his father to his brothers. Someone who would be tempted but did not sin. Someone who was betrayed by those he loved and sold for the price of a slave. Someone who would have his robes taken from him. Someone who would be punished for things that he didn't do. Someone who would be placed with two prisoners, one of whom would be saved and the other lost. Someone who would suffer incredibly for the sake of an incredible deliverance. Someone who would ultimately be exalted to a place of power and honour someone who stands in a position to judge and someone before whom people would bow and someone who knows the guilt of those who bow before him. And then here's the demonstration of the gospel. In both cases, God's agenda becomes clear. God's agenda comes out like invisible ink. When you run the iron or the crayon over that piece of paper and you wonder what is going to come, suddenly... It becomes clear. You and I stand before God as guilty. Not just guilty of wronging others, but guilty of wronging God. We haven't given him the place he deserves. We haven't obeyed his holy law. We haven't lived up to the fact that we're made in his image. But as we come before God, guilty I was about to say guilty of sin. That's sort of truer than it really sounds, isn't it? As we come before God, Jesus says to us, I'm not here to punish you. This didn't happen so I could punish you. This happened so that I could save you. Come away from your meager existence. Come and enjoy the life of abundance that I can offer you. Do you reckon that Joseph's brothers would say, thanks anyway, I'm going back. I'll just take my sack of grain and go back to to, uh, Canaan? I don't think so. 
So faced with the invitation that Jesus has for us, I know your guilt. I know what you've done. I know your heart. But I'm not here to punish, he says. I'm here to rescue. There is this big rescue plan. We have to decide whether we accept or reject. Do I accept the invitation of forgiveness and restoration and have the back, the relationship that I was always supposed to have but was broken because I wanted to put myself first? Do I accept it back? Do I come back into family relationship? Just like Joseph was extending. Will I, like Joseph's brothers, be reconciled to the point where we can talk again? Spend time together. Experience his love. Or do I reject it and go back to the life I had before? To take my sack of grain, my burden of guilt, and go back to the place of famine. It's almost irresistible, isn't it? Thankfully, Joseph's brothers chose to accept that invitation and they embrace and they cry and they talk and they become a family again. The way it was meant to be from the very beginning. Jesus makes the same invitation to us. Come, enjoy the life that I have for you. Don't go back. Don't go back to the place of guilt. Don't reject him. If you've never made that decision, don't reject him. I'm going to ask the music team to come up. If you've never, ever thought about what to do about Jesus, and here's two questions for you. Firstly, what are you going to do about the hidden sin in your life? Remembering that it's really not hidden. It might be hidden from me, that's fine. I don't, there's plenty of stuff that I don't know. But it's not hidden from God, and it's not hidden from you. What am I going to do about my hidden sin? And secondly, what am I going to do about Jesus? Just like Joseph, Jesus says, hey, come, bow, confess. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to have the relationship that we were meant to have from the very beginning. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for your amazing rescue plan that was obvious, that were obviously there in preparation for so long. Thank you for your grace that gets extended to us and it saves us from getting what we deserve and it offers us something that we don't deserve. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that you can deal with the stuff that's in our lives that only we can see. Help us, Lord, to not 
live a lie pretending that it's not there. Help us to come and to bow and to confess. Lord, we acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge that it's not just a one-off thing that we need you, but it's every day. Amen.